Welcome to the Scholarly Kitchen Podcast for May 15th, 2013. I'm Stuart Wills from Science Magazine, and today we're asking the question, what do our customers want? Or maybe better, in this age of user empowerment and choice, what do our customers expect? We have, it seems, so many new ways to get a handle on customer sentiment, everything from uh, web analytics to online surveys to social media streams to instant polls. But in many ways, the best approach still seems to be to get together with them one-on-one and ask. Uh, Anne Michael, president of the consulting firm Delta Think and one of the chefs of the Scholarly Kitchen, led an interesting session earlier this month at the STM meeting in Washington, D.C. on the subject of our new customer relationship. She joins us now. Anne, welcome. Thank you. So I suppose, you know, first, kind of a meta question, not just what do our customers expect, but who exactly are our customers these days? Well, you know, that is actually a really interesting question, Stuart, because I think that historically uh, we've been used to our customers being large institutions and librarians and the people that make decisions on behalf of, of those institutions and their constituencies. And more and more, I think we're seeing that publishers are recognizing the power of the consumer, if you will, even though we're talking about a professional market, and that individuals are becoming more of a target market. And there's many, many reasons for this, but I would say one of the largest reasons for this is because within the last decade or more, they've started to get more of a voice. So where in the past we may have tried to anticipate what end users would need, and certainly the, the people that bought on their behalf were also anticipating that need. Now we're starting to hear more directly from the customers themselves what they need and what they expect, and those expectations are being shaped by their experiences as a consumer wherever they are. Yes, and precisely because of that, uh, they seem to be behaving, you know, one user to another in very different ways, relying on very different tools. That seems like quite a challenge to, uh, to, trying, to trying to sell to them. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know that, um, not, not to dive right in here, but one of the things that comes to mind as you mentioned that is, and we didn't talk about this much on, on this particular session, but we've talked about it in sessions in the past, is the whole idea of just anticipating not just how, what kind of devices they might want to use, particularly in a mobile or a, a non, you know, laptop desktop setting, but also then how their experience needs to be shaped on those devices based on what it is they're actually trying to accomplish and the layers of complexity just seem to be growing. Well, let's talk about one specific case that really struck me in the panel that you moderated. Uh, There was a librarian from a small college uh, called Sweetbriar College, a really small liberal arts school that seemed to have made a decision, you know, basically to go completely iPad with their pedagogy, or that was sort of how it sounded. Yeah, it was it was very interesting to speak to Julie Kane. She was a librarian at Sweetbriar College, and she told a story about how they had gotten a new president. And I loved this phrase. A phrase, excuse me. They said that uh, they, their strategic plan said that digital sophistication was a required element of how they would move forward. And then, if you um, combine that with the fact that they started to require uh, more advanced research from lower-level courses, they started to get a lot of demand from younger incoming students for more um, deep research, and those students had a preference for doing that 
on an iPad and in a mobile environment. And so Sweetbriar chose the application Browsine and said that they really wanted to get all of their resources, their journal resources in particular, on that platform and ran into some problems trying to get publishers to agree to that. Yeah, I, I was struck by one thing she said, which was that they were almost trying through this browsing app to uh, recreate the physical experience uh, of, of the sort of library stacks or, or what have you in, in this app context. Do you remember that? Yes, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm, I'm cheating and looking at her slides right now, and it's very much that same kind of bookshelf and uh, that shelf experience that you see in the Apple store, you know, mm-hmm. uh, iBookstore or whatnot. And yes, and then, but even dr- drilling down more deeply, although they did want a lot more in annotation, which is something that I'm finding a lot. Uh, I've been doing a little bit of work in the social sciences, but I've worked historically in the sciences, and this seems to be a common thread that they they do want that experience, even to the to the point of being able to annotate what they're reading and save those annotations and share them. But it's interesting that this annotation is is through a sort of a non-publisher tool or a third-party tool, and I noted that interest in this browsing app in particular was not just in, you know, Sweetbriar College, the, another librarian you had on your panel from a much different institution, NYU, said they were also piloting this app. Yes. And I, w- I wonder what that sort of means, you know, for publishers who might be putting out their own uh, features, their own apps, etc. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think this is an interesting question, and and it kind of goes back, I, I think, to other areas of technology uh, as well. It's it's very difficult for a publisher to decide where are they the um, the the services and the technology provider. Where are they a content provider? Can you? actually even draw a line between those things. Mm. Um, and I think, I, I think what, what's starting to happen is publishers are, are trying to go for a blended approach where if there are platforms that offer these features, they have to be able to prepare their content in a way such that they can participate in that for the, for the customers that want to participate in those environments and for their own marquee titles potentially that have the following and can stand on their own they might need to offer those services themselves or even white-label them that where, where someone else is creating them, but they, they look and feel as though they're branded by, by that publisher. Um, and I, I, don't think, I don't think there are any easy answers to that. I, I think that one of the issues that we run into all the time is that we listen to a panel like this or others where there was a panel of, of younger, early and career people also at the STM conference. And it's not as though anybody on that panel is going to give us the, the, the magic answer. It's more like as a publisher, you have to listen to them and figure out the strength of your brand, the strength of your community, the needs of your community, and to decide, do I need to go it alone play on other platforms or both. And I, I feel as though for many instances, for larger publishers, it's actually both. Yeah, that was sort of the impression I got. And, and in, the, in, in the other panel that you were referring to uh, with the early career scientists, I was really just struck by the wide diversity of experiences and sort of points of view. There was one, uh, there was one person in that panel who was in the middle of his tenure review process. And I mean, everything was was devoted to that goal and you know in terms of the journals he was publishing in in terms of lots of things that he was doing 
someone actually took me aside after that panel. We were talking, and they said that they were um, a little disappointed in the sense that they felt as though those early career people, there, there were limits placed on their ability to experiment because of the environments in which they were trying to gain credibility. And, and Antoine, the, the, the social science professor, was one in particular that, that they mentioned that here was this obviously really bright and inquisitive, uh, you know, young in career sociologist that really had to do certain things in certain ways in order to make sure that he got tenure. Well, going back to your panel, uh, and there was also uh, a sort of an end user on your panel as well, a research scientist from Trinity University, and his plea with what he wanted uh, from publishers had to do with something we heard we were also hearing a lot about in this meeting, and that was data. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Stephen Backrack at, at Trinity, he's a chemist, and um, he does a lot. Particularly, he was talking about molecules and 3D representations of molecules and, and, and things of that nature. And, uh, and he said absolutely that they would, he would want to be able to deposit his data. He would want access to other people's data. He felt as though um, experiments needed to be validated by executing them upon the data that uh, was also submitted with a paper, for example. And it was interesting. He was concerned about quality. He did understand that this had ramifications for other people in the ecosystem, librarians and publishers, to name two. Um, but, but like, I, I think, like going back a little bit to what we were saying a few minutes ago, it, you know, Stephen wasn't offering all the answers. He was offering the opportunity. <laughs> right. But he seemed to be sort of conflicted about what he actually wanted uh, publishers to do. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk about in this meeting about data as a sort of business frontier for publishers, but when questions of costs and sustainability came up and, and, and how it was, you know, what the business model actually is, things seem to get a bit more, uh, a bit fuzzier. Yeah, they get a little bit dicey. It's not clear. And, you know, I, I think which, which really points to the fact that we need to have some experimentation in the area. And the area itself, I think, needs to mature. So it might be that experiments early in, in how to store and manage and, uh, and archive data might lead to models that are vastly different later down the line. It's, it, it seems to be a need, but you're absolutely right. There's no clear-cut way as to how this becomes even self-sustaining. Let's not even talk about profitable. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's put all of this together. What would you say are some of the sort of take-home messages you got from this meeting and from other things you've been seeing lately regarding customer relationships and customer desires uh, for publishers in particular? Well, I think one of the things is, is something that we discussed very early on, and that is that they have expectations. It's, it's not simply what they want. It's starting to be what customers expect. And although the institution has been the primary purchaser for most of these publishers, that institution is being heavily influenced by the, the members, <laughs> faculty and students, and the opportunity to sell directly to the individual is definitely emerging as, as viable. Doing that, though, I think gets into a lot of the things we just discussed about the capabilities that you need to have um, in order for someone to access and discover and annotate your content and, and where your content needs to be. Uh, it, you know, it's more likely that when you start to get, I think, to an individual purchaser, that they're going to want that portfolio across different publishers. 
and and so tools like Browsine and there are others as well are are going to be more and more important in the mix of of things of of avenues and channels that a publisher supports. Um, but but the big thing I would think of it just sitting back is that there's a lot going on. There's a lot of activity in a lot of different places, and I think publishers need to be really careful about picking and choosing where and how they want to experiment in these areas, learning from those experiments and refining them with the understanding that just because a particular experiment won't be able to replace 50% of your print revenue in five years doesn't mean that it isn't something that should be done and should be um, fostered so that, you know, in the longer term, that there is that you are in the right places, even if we don't know exactly where those are right now. Well, Anne Michael of Delta Think, thanks very much. Thanks, Stuart. And thank you for dropping in to the Scholarly Kitchen podcast for May 15th, 2013. Be sure to visit scholarlykitchen.sspnet.org, where every day some of the sharpest minds in scholarly publishing detail, discuss, and debate the trends shaping the business. Thanks to the Society for Scholarly Publishing for its support of this project and for hosting our audio files, and to the American Association for the Advancement of Science for use of its studio and production facilities. This is Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. Until next time, on behalf of SSP and all of the chefs in the scholarly kitchen, bon appétit.